May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I find there's a a common curse uh, to religion in general, not just Christianity, but all religions in general, uh, that we think that it's about outward conformity, performance, uh, what we do, or even what we think or say. And I see this on three fronts. I'm open to be challenged on this. Um, uh, if, if you can think of a fourth or a fifth, but uh, I see it with ethics, where you could call that morality. I see it with knowledge, the gaining of knowledge, intellect, uh, and spirituality, or you could call that sort of mysticism. Um, so, so those three fronts that I see the sort of demand for outward conformity are with ethics, knowledge, and spirituality. Again, I'm open. If you think of a fourth or a fifth or more, please let me know. And this sort of thinking dominated the first 25 years of my life. I mean, it's still in my life, but it really dominated the first 25 years or so of my life. Not a Christian. Um, you know, we're, we all want to worship in some way. So even though it wasn't even though I was a professed atheist, uh, I had religion. You know what I mean? I wanted uh, better ethics. I wanted more knowledge. And I wanted to be more spiritual. Spiritual but not religious, if there's such a thing. Um, and, and based my worth on those things and, and how well I was performing. And so naturally, once I began actually dabbling with the Christian religion, uh, this sort of thinking crept in. And I was greatly distressed when I came to faith and sort of signed my name on the dotted line that I had this thing go on for about a month where I could not get out of my head profane thoughts about God, that I would say terrible things to him and about him in my mind. It was as if the devil had possessed me to do this. I mean, it's literally like the the wilderness period. It was like 40 days of this and it... It was killing me, and it, it, it's, one day I just woke up and went away, you know, but I was greatly distressed about that because I thought, oh no, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, I thought that I've come to saving faith, and, and all of a sudden my performance is, is not only bad, it's terrible, it's in the opposite direction. And the thing I hadn't entirely understood yet was that I would never be perfect, that I would be never be perfect, I could never be perfect, and it wasn't up to me. Uh, actually, the point of my salvation was that Jesus had done it all for me, that he does it all for me. And I hadn't quite come uh, to grips with that, even though I'd sort of heard that message. I thought, well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, um, I still need the sort of uh, moral improvement, the accrual of knowledge and the spirituality for my salvation uh, to be perfected. But actually, the point of my salvation was that Jesus had done it all for me. The point of your salvation is that Jesus has done it for you in your stead. This is a concept that we call justification. Basically, you're justified in God's sight, not because of uh, your moral improvement. You're justified in God's sight, not because, like the Gnostics say, you need to acquire more and more secret knowledge to gain entrance into the kingdom. You're justified in God's sight, not because of your... uh, your sort of mystical improvement program, uh, you're justified in God's sight because Jesus Christ gives his righteousness to you. And when God looks upon you, that's what he sees. 
How then, uh, if that's the case, do we make sense of all three of our Bible passages today? Uh, and I'm primarily concerned about uh, the passage from Matthew. For a few weeks, we're preaching on some passages from Matthew, which is read all year this year. So we'll be sort of dipping in here and there. Uh, but the Deuteronomy passage and the portion of Psalm 119 line up well uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, uh, we hear that we must fulfill the law to be right with God, which seems to be exactly the opposite of what I just told you about justification. Deuteronomy is the uh, fifth book in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the last book, book of the Pentateuch, which is a, attributed to Moses. It means basically the second law or the copy of the law. Uh, and it emphasizes that its laws are not new. I mean, these were the laws that were given earlier in the Pentateuch. Rather, they're reflections on these original laws given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Moses reflects on Israel's mistakes during the past 40 years of their wandering in the desert. They'd been given the law. They said, all this we will do, and immediately they don't do it over and over again. Uh, Their hearts seem to be set in the opposite direction. Even when they had seen crazy things like the plagues and the parting of the sea. You know, I mean, they get to the other side and they build a golden calf after they're told them that the first thing you need to do is uh, recognize that I'm the only true God and not make uh, false idols. And, and there you have it. They break God's law right away, but not only right away, over and over again, even though they've been given it explicitly. And so he urges them not to repeat the same mistakes when they go into the promised land. Uh, and the point is uh, they have not uh, so far lived up to the, to the law that God has required of them. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Psalter. It's also the longest chapter in the Bible. And uh, it's longer than some of the epistles in the New Testament. And it's a strange psalm. It's a sort of love poem to God's law. It's a love poem to God's law. It's not something you think naturally to write about, right? I mean, when I sit down to write poetry, I'm not thinking about the law, you know, and how how much I love it. But there you have it. And great that the Bible has Psalm 119. It celebrates this gift of God's uh, covenant instructions as a sort of perfect guide uh, for all, everything, all manner of life, the, the culture of Israel is laid out for them. And Psalm 119 celebrates this. Just listen to the very first verse of Psalm 119. And, you know, the first sentence of anything often sort of frames what the the idea is. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And this idea is repeated over and over again in that psalm and even elsewhere. Uh, It sees the law worth uh, praising God for with a sort of heartfelt admiration so much so that we might respond and breaking out in song. And again, this isn't sort of my natural impulse. Instead, I feel accused by God's law and want to hide uh, and not want to sort of sing songs about it. But just think about the presence of police cars on the road. You know, I don't know about you, but anytime I'm driving, and here in Birmingham, they're like, what, those sort of like Ford Escapes or something like that? You know, which SUVs I'm talking about, they all look like that. And even if I see someone else who has that same white SUV and it's not a cop car, what do I, I just want to pull over and be like, just go, you know? I mean, I might be doing the speed limit, 
but the presence of the law accuses me. Some that I sort of impute guilt to myself and think, have I, how many glasses of wine have I had? How fast am I going? Is the taillight out? Have I renewed the registration? Just right through my mind, or like those Crown Victorias, you know? I mean, anytime I see something like that, I think it's a cop car. Uh, and I've sort of worked out this game where I realize that if I go about 10 miles an hour over the speed limit anywhere, even on the boulevards, I live on Crestwood Boulevard, you can get away with going 50 and not get pulled over, right? The speed limit's 40. On the interstate, it's 70. You can go 80. I put cruise control, 80. You do it, right, too? Like 5 to 10 miles an hour. I game the law uh, so that I can get away with it. But the worst state to do this is Georgia. Don't do that in Georgia. You can go 77, but don't go 80. Uh, you'll get a massive fine. And there are people in our lives too, right? Just the very presence of this person accuses you. <laughs> they're just their being, whatever it is, things that you know about the person, uh, the way they've treated you or others, or just the, they're the sort of image of perfection that you think you want to live up to by the way that they dress. I'm certainly not compelled to break out in heartfelt song for the cop in the Ford Escape or that person. But there you have it. That's Psalm 119, which is doing just that. And, and this is sort of uh, the, the framework for, for Deuteronomy 2, which also uh, is praising God's law as a guide. And yet the... Uh, the money quote of the Deuteronomy passage we have isn't alluding to sort of outward conformity, the performance that I talked about earlier. Rather, it's this line where Moses says, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. But if your heart turns away, you will surely perish. The emphasis here is on the sort of substratum layer, the deep down, the peeling back of the onion, you know, the proverbial onion. What's at the core, the root cause? It's not the outward conformity, but the thing deep down that causes uh, us not to obey the law. The affections sort of drive our obedience or our disobedience to God. Even if we appear to be obeying the law on the surface, you know, whether it's God's law or the police's law or the law of that person in your life that expects things, our hearts might not be in it. You know, I can go 30 uh, where the speed limit's 30 and resent the speed limit, you know, uh, or, or whatever it is. I can read God's law and resent some of the particulars and my heart not be in it. Jesus gets at something really similar on his, in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in our passage today, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is several chapters, and so it's, you can't really explore the whole sermon in one sermon. Our passage today is even just a portion of a little bit of a larger section where he talks about murder, uh, adultery, adultery, divorce, taking oaths, and later, I think probably next Sunday, retaliation. But it's part of that section. And the formula with each of the ideas is really similar. He does this. He takes this sort of misinterpretation of an Old Testament law given by Moses, and then he explains what the law was always meant to get at. Take, for example, uh, verses uh, 27 and 30 today, just this, this one section, which is representative of all of them. I don't need to get into each one, just the sort of idea of one. Let's go deep with this one idea here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than if your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus emphasizes that the law cuts to the heart, to the core. Remember, like I said about that Deuteronomy passage, the root cause. What's the real problem? You know, it's not the looking uh, or the, the object of the affection. It's not the thing done with the hand. It's the hand and the eye itself. It's the, even deeper than that. It's the heart. Tear your heart out. I just started watching Indiana Jones again. Remember the, you know, take it out and throw it away. I mean, that's the, that's the real cause is that dark heart. Uh, the problem isn't murder. It's not adultery. It's not divorce. It's not oath-taking. And it's not retaliation. The problem is with things like anger, lust, dishonesty, or you could even say idolatry and greed. You know, those are the real problems. If you want to repent of something, repent of anger, lust, dishonesty, adultery, and, uh, sorry, idolatry and greed. When I was, um, 12 years old, my mother had a, a boyfriend who was a real terrible man. Um, and one, and, and he had a daughter who was about the same age as me. Maybe she was about 11. And one day, the two of them were over at our house, and, and she and I were in my room playing, and my mom and her boyfriend were in the other room, and we're playing nicely, and all of a sudden, I hear my mom screaming, uh, basically for help, you know, get off of me. And my natural impulse, uh, I didn't know what was going on, uh, because I didn't trust this man to begin with, was to go and get my baseball bat. And I ran into the other room, and lo and behold, he's trying to have his way with her. And uh, I took the baseball bat and attacked him. And he tried to take the bat from me. I mean, a 40-something-year-old man, and he couldn't get, you know that adrenaline thing they talk about that someone can kind of like lift a car? Here's a 12-year-old me with my uh, aluminum baseball bat attacking this six-foot-something big 40-year-old man. Couldn't even get the bat out of my hand. So he ran out of the house to his car, and I ran after him. He picked up a pot in the yard and threw it at me and hit me in the head, and I just kept going. Like, about to kill him. And took off, and his daughter's still at the house. And he came back later yelling for her to come out because he was afraid that I was going to beat the hell out of him with this baseball bat. For months, I wanted to kill that man. Or if I were going to murder him, I wanted him to die. I would have fantasies or dreams at night of him being run over by cars. You know, there's only one person that I've ever had this in my life where I wanted to see that person die. Uh, And I would have been happy to be the person who killed him. According to the Sermon on the Mount, even though I don't even know if he's still alive, he probably is, I am guilty of murder because of the thought that was in my heart to do such a thing. I mean, just think about this statement. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The root cause is no different than an actual act of doing it, according to God's economy. 
Basically, any time that I have sort of road rage or get impatient and yell at my kids and make passive-aggressive remarks about people, either their face or behind their backs or upset and gossiping, uh, at the heart level, I'm viewed in God's eye as the equivalent of a murderer. The source of my crime is the exact same place as if I'd carried it out. It's anger. So where's the hope? You know, where's the hope for us habitual lawbreakers who it's impossible to change our ways. Even if we look to be uh, patient and not angry, you know, deep down it's there. Pastors know this because we meet people in dementia and later in life when the, the brain starts to change, you'll find the sweetest little old lady who now swears like a sailor, you know, because it, it, was, it, was, it was always there. It was filtered. And that filter comes undone. Uh, and they say what, they, what was, it was what meant, whether they meant it or it was just sort of lodged in the mind. So where's the hope for us habitual lawbreakers? Well, immediately before our passage today, uh, Jesus explains, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to ab- I've not come to abolish this law. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them." The fact that Jesus came to fulfill the law is a sort of complex statement that has to do with a lot that happens in the Old Testament that I won't get into, but to say the least, he fulfills the law for us. He fulfills the law for you. He fulfills the law for for the murderer me, who is guilty because of the anger that I had and have had since then. Uh, he, He doesn't have it, and it's given to us. Remember what I said about justification. And although that uh, we cannot live without sort of the experience of anger, lust, and dishonesty, Jesus did. Part of his work in coming incarnate and in human flesh was to be our representative. Uh, although I have not lived this perfect life, he has, and he's given it to me. At the end of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which we'll hear about next week, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. After he's talked about all these things and sort of re-explaining uh, Moses giving the law on Mount Sinai and raising the bar to the nth degree, you know, tear out your eye and cut off your hand, you therefore must be perfect. Every iota, not a jot and tittle of the law, will go away. I've not come to abolish it. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This perfection is not demanded in terms of outward conformity, but at the heart level even, it's deep-seated. So when we're confronted by this idea, we have sort of no response other than to beg for mercy. You know, I can't do this. I can't do this. Have mercy. Kyrie eleison. Old Anglican churches, I've brought this up before. It's too bad that we uh, don't have the space for it up there, but old colonial churches. Uh, I was at a, a new church uh, last week with some folks in North Carolina, built 15 months ago, and they built it beautifully based on these old colonial churches. It's, you know, no stained glass. And up uh, above the table there, they have three things. They have the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. But mainly I want to emphasize... The Ten Commandments are up there. That's all that, all that you really have to look at in this. There's no sort of artistry like this building. You look forward and you're confronted the whole time you're sitting in church with God's law for this very reason. You're sitting in the, the pews and, and you realize, I need mercy. 
and I need to hear it from the pulpit, I need to hear it in the prayers, and I need to receive it from the sacraments. It's you're sort of, you can't help but be brought to your knees. It's, so, it's great that in the Anglican Church we have kneelers for this reason. But the point is not to sort of just grovel and stay there on the floor, but to put us in right relationship. Because when we're confronted with these sort of ideas, uh, we're, we can be open to God's mercy. And even though we don't have the Ten Commandments up here on the wall, just consider all the similar things that we have in our own services, like Almighty God, to you all hearts are open in our communion service, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Everything. You know, what are the secret thoughts and desires of your heart? That God knows even better than you do. Maybe even the types of things back when you were 12 years old and wanted to kill somebody. Or maybe it's now. Maybe you don't feel good enough. Maybe you feel unlovable, especially with respect to God. Maybe you've done or thought horrible things. And when you look around here at church or elsewhere in your life, you see Christians who seem sort of well-dressed and well-adjusted. Maybe you're not sure uh, if you quite buy this God stuff yet and all that this preacher's talking about. And you especially don't want any more moral laws. You know, the world's got enough to judge us with, like police cars and that person in your life. Or maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you are committed to these ideas, but you're still racked with your inability to sort of improve, to get better. The human condition is sort of evenly distributed when it comes at this heart level. Who could be uh, so perfect in the way that God demands, in the way that uh, Jesus talks about in uh, Matthew chapter 5? There's no one, not even the most mature Christian, who is absolutely perfect. As a matter of fact, if you meet someone who's an older, wiser, mature Christian, what does that usually mean? It means they recognize exactly what I'm talking about. They usually tend to be the most humble person in the room who knows that they're not perfect, and you want to be in that person's presence, don't you? Because uh, because they're not judging, because they get it too. They're, they're in it with you. In the message of Deuteronomy... Uh, the passage we have tonight, Psalm 119, and the, the Sermon on the Mount serve to humble and humiliate us. And as I said before, uh, the good news is, the gospel, is this opens us up to the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. It's not until we understand the law cutting to our hearts and our inability that we can accept finally this message of good news that he has done it. And he's done it for us. So let's take one final look at this uh, Matthew passage. Um, verses uh, 23 and 24 say, if, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If you didn't come to church this morning, Andrew Pearson preached a great sermon at our morning services. We have all our sermons online by the way, you can listen to them in our audio feed. Go listen to his sermon this morning where he talks about uh, this line uh, and really convicted all of us to take this seriously because usually our inability to live up to the law really affects our relationships with each other. And then often when we come together here, 
that is visually represented when we finally come to take communion. It's not just the individual piety in my taking bread, but the representation that because I'm reconciled with God, I now am able to be reconciled uh, with my fellow brother and sister in Christ and to take uh, a meal together with them. I mean, who wants to eat a meal with someone you don't like, right? Do you go over to that person's house for dinner? That's exactly what we do here when we celebrate communion, is being reconciled and hearing that message uh, not only with God, but with each other. And tonight is uh, evening prayer. We don't have communion, but they used to do this back in the day where they'd only celebrate communion like quarterly or once a month. They would read exhortations and say, take this stuff seriously. Next Sunday or in three Sundays, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion. And if, uh, if there's something that, you know, is on your heart about your uh, anger uh, or lust or dishonesty toward a fellow brother and sister in Christ, go and be reconciled with them and then come and take the meal with them. And so just this week, you know, because we have evening prayer, I commend that idea to you. I commend that idea to you uh, before we uh, take communion next week. With all these things in mind, you know, I want to leave you with hope. Remember that this isn't just about groveling, uh, that that, uh, we're cut to the heart in this way. It finally opens us up to receive God's mercy. And we'll receive it uh, not only in word next week, but in sacrament with the bread and wine. So I invite you to, to just briefly tonight before we end to pray with me. Friends, if you're convicted that there are things you've done that you don't want to do or that there are things you know you ought to do but can't seem to, then you're convicted of God's law, which is written on every human heart. Your crimes are not only the outward things you've done or said, but the deep-seated problems of your heart like anger, lust, dishonesty, greed, and idolatry. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and by our very corrupted nature. We are perplexed by Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, and our only natural response is to beg for your mercy. Our confidence is in your saving grace alone. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.